Welcome back to Revolution and Ideology. I'm Jared. I'm Nick. And today we are going to talk about the invention of American tradition. Um, actually, it's not. We're not going to talk about the entire invention of American tradition. We're going to talk very specifically about the American tradition of how we view space and how we view acquisition of space. Um, we're going to be referencing a very specific article written by M.J. Bowden um, back in the Journal of Historical Geography in 1992. The reason we like this, and if you've kind of followed our trajectory recently, we just did an episode on the invention of tradition, like the kind of groundbreaking work regarding how narrative and ritual and all those things are created to rationalize not the past, but the present. And of course, that came to us from Eric Hopsbaum. Uh, Nick kind of guided us through that episode. Um, this is kind of writing, this article specifically is kind of writing that collection, that groundbreaking collections coattails in a way. But I want to stress here that it's not discussing all of American tradition from like a ritual or practical point of view. This is written by a geographer for a geographic survey of how the way we view space um, basically has become American tradition. Anything you want to add to that, Nick, as the sociologist? No, I think you pretty well, but... I'm not a geographer. You're yeah. not a geographer, but we like yeah. to go cross-disciplinary here sometimes. Yeah, which is why I think that's why I like this article is because it takes Hobsbawm's work, which is purely historical, clearly, uh, and a bit sociological. And this geographer really, I mean, he's a historical geographer, right? Puts it in the context of geography and applies those concepts to, like you said, how we view time and space, how we more space really land, right? How do Americans view land and our relationship to it and how that is informed by the myth of the founding of our nation, essentially the invention of the tradition that goes along with that time. So like you said, it's really an extension of Hobsbawm's idea in kind of a different direction, which is appealing and yeah. interesting to think about that's outside of our normal wheelhouses, yes. which is why I think it's so compelling. Right. It, those of you that have been longtime listeners of the of the podcast know that we have an entire series that deals with the narrative invention of tradition in the United mm -hmm. States. It's called Myth is America, where essentially we deconstruct all of the wrongful omissions or obfuscations in American history that, again, rationalize much of our poor behavior both then and now. This is not that. This is the geogra – I mean, it is a little bit because it's going to deal a little bit with First Nations and land dispossession, mm -hmm. but it's not – I'm not going to go heavily into some of the things I've talked about in the past – racism, subjugation of women, social hierarchy, these types of things that, that we've talked about in the past. We are going to um, mostly focus on space, time mm -hmm. and space. Anything else? Nope. Let's do it. Let's kick it off. Okay. So it opens up with actually a pretty cool quote that I just want to read and, and we'll talk about. Bowden says, major American beliefs about the pre-American environment were all created successively as myths after settlement in each ecological zone. Taken together, these beliefs constitute the grand tradition of the pristine wilderness, a wild American nature far tougher to conquer than it ever was in reality. To exaggerate the conquering American achievement further, the role of Native Americans in transforming the pre-American environment was denied, as was their humanity and cultural adaptability. The conquering heroes were superhuman, self-glorifying Americans, pioneers who transferred the pristine wilderness into a Jeffersonian garden of American yeomen following a Ternarian frontier conflict that left Americans deeply scarred by and hostile to the environment, but also fashioned by it into a people of unique national character and institutions. It's kind of a fire intro. What do 100%. you think of what I'm yeah, like saying there? So he has a few points here. The first, which really lays the groundwork for the invention of tradition, going back to Hobsbawm's ideas, is that, I mean, it's kind of a bold claim, really, that the way that the story is told of the time, right, is like the wild frontier and these brave settlers went out and like, he argues that that was all invented after the fact, that the way that we view the past and this portion of American history, that's all just completely manufactured. It's a story it's a narrative that was invented to really solidify our beliefs of the history of the time, which, like you said, is straight fire. And then the rest of the article is improving this, obviously, which we're going to get to. Um, and he says, yeah, the way that we view this period now uh, is it, purely a result of myth making surrounding that area. 
which is rationalizes behaviors of conquest and dispossession and the need to improve space merely for the sake of improvement, not necessarily because it's beneficial. Um, This idea of subduing land or resources or rivers or mountains or even extractive processes later, right? This extraction based Mm -hmm. narrative that's all founded here in this invention of American tradition. Okay. So he says, right, the conquering heroes were superhuman, self-glorifying Americans, pioneers, blah, blah, blah. Yep. The fact that that's how our historical narrative goes is purely an invention that he's going to dissect in his article. That's the main point. It's not unique. It's not superhuman. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even all that impressive if we really get down to it when you consider that between 25 and 100 million people already lived in North America when the whites showed up. Like it was already right. land, like people had already been doing these things. Mm-hmm. And and it's not even uniquely to unique to this continent. If we look at like how the hominids developed over time, like nothing that happened here was unique, more unique than, than happened anywhere else where humans yeah. went and eventually settled. So, okay. There are four types of invented traditions are recognized. Instant traditions invented by political and religious leaders, deliberate but informal inventions by literary and artistic uh, elites, which, le- uh, which led through myth creation to invention, images formed by the elite, which were incorporated as fact into people's reminiscences and rediscovered and universalized, and finally, ideas in the air for generations given form and substance by great men who invented grand metaphors for the nation. So he's basically saying that these traditions have come to us at least, at least in in four different ways, right? These ways are either through imagery or through literature or through political institutions, right? Like this is one of the key components here is that these traditions don't entirely come from the people that were performing the actual material settler-based process. What mm-hmm. do you think of that? Yeah, I think it's important, right? These four different types of uh, sort of traditions that are invented and how they come to the people. Like you said, it's not always the people. Some of them are, right? He says instant traditions. But I would argue that the majority come to us after the fact, like his main point, right? They're by literary and artistic elites, which create and invent the myth after the fact images formed by these people that are incorporated into our view of this history. Right. And then future generations that also further solidify this manufactured history. So it's an important point because many people think like, well, yeah, it's just like the people at the time made up all these stories. And now that's why we believe what we do, but it's so much more nuanced than that. And it's a process that takes place over time that is continuously taking place. It's still happening to this day. Yeah, that's the point. Like some of you might be sitting there listening, like who cares? We told stories about the wild west or whatever. What are the, but there are intense ramifications, the way we view the environment, why we cannot seem to stop to do, stop doing these things too. Like Mm -hmm. again, our ecological systems. It's not just that we don't have the willpower strictly because of something like capitalism, although that plays like a major role. We have this romanticized notion of taming literally like the earth, almost in, in terms of like a hierarchy, like man above planet. These are just, that's just one of the many ramifications, but it's the Mm -hmm. easiest one for me to call out right now. So it's not that it doesn't matter. This belief system informs our practices and why we're having such a hard time changing those practices, even in the face of insurmountable evidence regarding the fact that this is not sustainable. The way we do things is not sustainable. I mean, not to mention the environmental and the geographic, but also the fact that indigenous peoples in North America still are being massively abused, right? In so many different ways. They go on to say the invented traditions studied in this essay fall into two groups, those of wild people in wild lands before settlement and those of the American people and of the landscape they produced. So I must stress that the first part is key. Why would we want to romanticize the notion that before euros came, this land was untamed. It was savage, as the word would be used quite often. Mm-hmm. Um, and the people that lived here uh, ran nude or naked. He uses these terms throughout in, in the literature that he's picked apart. Basically, to, to, to use the highly loaded term, uncivilized. Why would we want to use this language when describing what the continent looked like before the whites showed up? Yeah, I think there's a few reasons. The first is that it ends up justifying their behavior, right? When they're slaughtering these people in so many atrocious ways if we picture them as uncivilized quote-unquote savages right then that justifies that the other is 
if we have to include in the story that they had already, quote unquote, settled these lands, they were already there, they were already living in these civilizations where they had developed sustainable relationships with their natural environment. Sustainable is the key word. They were thriving, right? Then the white men ousting them from their environment and slaughtering them is a completely different story, right? And I must stress that, like, we do know this now as our archaeologists, anthropologists, and historians have kind of uncovered these practices. We're not going to sit here and say, like, all of North America um, were indigenous people uh, holding hands and singing kumbaya and rainbows and unicorns and that were, there were never any, like, like backslides. Like, we can look at certain settlements like Mesa Verde or Cahokia, and we can see that there were times when indigenous peoples actually also started to become too extractive and 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 over uh, tax their environment. But the point I guess I'm making is that those groups of people actually learned from those and changed again, right? Once we see mm-hmm. like these these falls in population, Cahokia is one of my favorite examples, right? Some historians posit, or excuse me, not even historians, we would call that archaeologists posit that at its peak, this settlement outside of what is modern day St. Louis had as many as 70,000 people. But by the time the settlers are there, um, it, it's just merely mounds, right? So what happened mm-hmm. to those people? Well, clearly um, it got too big and the practices of settlement and exploitation and Extraction led to a downfall. But the point is that the descendants thereof of the Cahokians, perhaps they are the Mississippian groups or whatever, they learned, right? They learned how to more sustainably act based on the lessons, which is something that we don't do because of this invented tradition. We don't learn the lesson. What do you think? Well, and we also strip the agency from the stories of those peoples, right? We we don't paint them as people who we're civilized enough to create this community of 70,000 people. I mean, that's a city, right? A significant yeah. city. And we completely strip from them the fact that they realized that that failed and was unsustainable and then adjusted their lifestyles as a result, right? For whatever reason, it was unsustainable. We don't have the, the, the definitive reason for that. But we do know that they changed the way that they behaved as a result. They learned, right? So we strip agency from these people by the way that we tell this story, by the invention of this mythological narrative. Which is interesting. We don't have maybe perhaps the story from, or at least I personally do not have the story of the descendants of the Cahokians and, and, and what transpired, but we actually have stories, one of my favorite to kind of go over regarding this transition in in, in history using narrative is um, the Deganawaita uh, epic, right? Like the Iroquois mm-hmm. League of Peace and Power is formed from times of trouble, conflict, resource uh, shortages, and a new way of living, again, founded by the Deganawaita epic, is... Is, is is put into or implemented into the social structures there and thus not just the social structures but the material structures of how they are going to live uh, with the environment with the with each other that's only one of like the hundreds I'm sure of countless exi- or hundreds ex- of examples here in North America but we actually have that that's evidence right there right? Mm-hmm. These times of troubles being solved through a new form of social organization, it shows that type of evolution. And when we won't talk about that, we are essentially absolving these people as Nick said of agency, right? And then attaching the only agency to the way we use land to the European settlers, right? Because that's what we focus on. And that's the second part here. He says that second group are those American people and the landscapes they produced. What do you think of that? Why is that word important? Why does Bowden use that word? Yeah. So there's two parts, right? It's the myth of the natives as savages, and it's the myth of the white who became American heroes, right? And he specifically says the land that they produced, right? That this is completely a myth. We think of them as conquering this wild frontier and then, you know, terraforming the land to their own purposes, completely ignoring the fact that the land was largely already productive. Right. In very many areas, there were large communities there by people that had already, like I said, developed a relationship with this land that sustained their livelihood. It it was already done. It wasn't it was productive for sustaining life. It wasn't productive for uh, manufacturing profits, for example. Right. right? Like there weren't large tobacco plantations, for example, Mm -hmm. or, you know, we didn't slaughter all of the or they didn't slaughter all of the bison or or things along those lines. So the natives did not have cash to make room to make room for beef. Right. We're slaughtering. It's 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 uh, it's an embarrassing history. But let's get back into into Bowden here. 
So one of the part of the narrative that becomes most clear, and this is kind of an interesting one for me, and it was even new for me as, as a historian because I didn't necessarily go through this narrative, was the idea of the desert wilderness. The idea mm-hmm. of a desert wilderness was not new to me. The fact that it was applied not to the Great Plains, because we're not to that yet, but to the original colonial process was actually a new thing for me to learn, that some of the literature of the time was discussing and the literature written thereafter, that the actual Atlantic coast, the first places that these settlers ended up landing was also often considered like a desert wilderness, even though, of course, we know it's chock full of like it's it's woodlands, it's rivers and those types of things. Mm-hmm. But the word desert meant to mean deserted, not necessarily like whatever sand dunes and, and cacti yeah. and those types of things. It was meant to mean that it was deserted. Now, I would be completely remiss as a historian not to admit that before, of course, firm English settlement had gotten a foothold along the Atlantic seaboard because of French trading, because of of, of Spanish conquistadors in the south and places like Florida and so on and so forth, that disease had not helped ravage part of the Atlantic seaboard. It absolutely did. And there was a lot of death and destruction. We do know that. That is absolutely historical fact. But the fact Mm. that 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 we still know the Atlantic seaboard was chock full of communities, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of individuals still living on the seaboard that had survived these pandemics. We don't want to necessarily admit that we want to assert that this was deserted. Why? Because then it forgives us of all of the sins that the colonists then committed against those people. And then it gives them, if no one's there, then the land is theirs for the taking. Right. And we even romanticize it, right? Like in one of our prior Mythos America episodes, we talk about the narrative of Pocahontas and how that kind of romanticizes this very specific period here mm-hmm. of only brief misunderstandings that are eventually solved through romance or whatever. And we can create this kind of multicultural, multi That's not what happened. We know like that, that, like we know in that very specific example, she ends up enslaved, sold into marriage to a, to a very wealthy tobacco farmer and dies at the age of what, 21 or 22 of sickness, mm-hmm. very unhappy. But we you know, but but even the narrative that's attached to that is apologetic, right? It's apologetic. Right. Yep. Um, anyway, Bowden then, even as a geographer, does what we historians do and goes through sources of the time. A lot of them are like literary and discusses the works of people like Thomas Morton and William Wood and even Cotton Mather, who's one of the more famous, and goes through the specific language that they are using to talk about this very deserted land that they are going to basically claim and tame. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, like you said, he does what we would expect and provides specific examples from the literature at the time where people are describing the East Coast as desert wilderness, which, I mean, like you said, should come to news as news to anyone who's ever knows anything about the East Coast. It very clearly isn't, wasn't at the time deserted, nor was it really wilderness. But this is the creation of the myth that he is proving here. The rationalization of settlement. And again, Mm -hmm. Why does this matter? Okay, well, we can't go back and fix it. What happened has happened. But no, that what, what we're trying to talk about is how this is still part of American tradition today, mm-hmm. how we frame far off places, right? One need look no further than how an Afghanistan is often framed, like this untamed, uncivilized wilderness. Well, what has that led to, right? Right? It's led to mm-hmm. numerous invasions and occupations and all these types of things. And, and how has that gone? Well, as of recently, if we're dating this episode, it hasn't gone very well, right? The tide is slowly yeah. turned in that example, but it excused the actions that were attached to it because of the language we used. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, not only that, even internally, that discourse is still used to this day in the narrative of our history, right? The wild frontier and like all, you know, the wilderness that was, you know, it's still used. It's, It's not like this has gone away. And so he demonstrates in this section specifically how that was invented as myth. He says, you know, Before 1630s, we don't see hardly any usage of these terms to describe the East Coast. But then there are a few landmark books, and he mentions them in here, and authors that start making use of this terminology. And this is the source of the myth, right? Very specifically, he calls it out and identifies it. And it is. It's tied to a later trajectory of a colonial, extractive, and land terraforming future, as well Mm -hmm. as past, right? Right. And we see that. Okay. Okay. The next part that I think is of of interest is this 
creation of the innoble salvage is what, but he's really trying to say savage. He uses the word mm-hmm. salvage because that was, was, was used at the time. That word in the English language has now evolved to savage. But regardless, he says the Puritan tradition of New England as desert wilderness transformed in 20 years from the wild to an English garden by Christian soldiers led by God needed another invention, that of the innoble savage to exaggerate and glorify the Puritan's achievement even more. The Puritan writers accomplished this by proving that Indians were wild beasts and devils by erasing the memory of Indian impact on the land as agriculturists and hunter-gatherers, and by demonstrating that because the Indians roamed but did not inhabit the land, that land was therefore, by legal definition, empty, quote-unquote. Vacuum uh, domicilium in Latin, or desert wilderness in the Old Testament vernacular. This is important, and I've referenced it before in our Myth is America series, but there's a great like expose using all of upstate New York as the example called The Ordeal of the Land Longhouse. It's written by Daniel Richter, and it is three to 400 pages plus of deep, dense detail of how this process took place. So I'm not going to try and recap that here, but we do know, and shoot, I think that was actually written in 92 as well, so around the same time as the study, um, we do know that there are, again, historians, anthropologists that can challenge this notion through actual empirical evidence here, mm-hmm. and we have chosen to ignore them to maintain this tradition. Now, before I ask you the question about Bowden, I want to tie this back to Al Hobsbawm. Why are we willing to ignore empirical evidence that challenges this tradition in, with, the, I guess, the aim of maintaining this trajectory? Yeah, I mean... It's this whole concept of the myth that we have, we can't acknowledge the people who are already here as quote unquote civilized and advanced with agency, with an actual relationship with the land, right? Especially at this time, he mentioned specifically the legal definition, right? If there were people here that were forming the land to fit their needs, then legally they had a right to that land. So we needed to prove that they were completely uncivilized, quote unquote, savage. And eventually and not support. even people. They would no, exactly, 100%. Dehumanize them altogether. So then there's no argument to be made that the land isn't rightfully the settlers, right? Absolutely. Um, and we know that that land... We, again, we know, like the studies are there, that land was not unused or untapped. They actually just had a more sustainable. So when we saw a pristine forest, it wasn't because in First Nations didn't know how to use the forest. They were using the forest for what they saw as most important. If you leave the forest pristine, your game, your deer, what you rely upon, can they can live. And you understand you want them to live because that's what like sustains you. Or if you saw fallow lands, it's not because they didn't want to grow. They understood that you have to rotate crops so you don't overexert the soil, mm-hmm. which, of course, the moronic settlers didn't know. I mean, we wouldn't have eventually right. had a dust bowl in Oklahoma if that were the case, right? Exactly. We had to commodify. Like hundreds of years later, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, not to okay. mention that, I mean, there's proof archaeologically and anthropologically that like the natives were doing advanced techniques like you just mentioned long before like we gave them credit for, like they were doing, you know, flash burning of the forest to create regeneration and like all kinds of things that don't fit the uh, uncivilized savage narrative. You know what I mean? And we always choose to ignore the fact, even though we celebrate um, cliche holidays like Thanksgiving, which was originally a First Nation holiday, even though we have that like brief celebration, which is just a a minor acknowledgement, I don't think we acknowledge nearly enough that the only reason the settlers did not die on the spot in both Jamestown and Plymouth, like those first two English settlements, was because they were bailed out in both cases by First Nations. Mm -hmm. Right. Massasoit, Massachusetts Bay, of which we've already done an episode on him and Powhatan um, in, in Jamestown. We've already done that episode as well in the Myth is America series. Go back. I mean, and just as an example, imagine if the entire narrative of our nation was that right, that that was the starting point that we owe eternal gratitude to the First Nations, because without them, the United States wouldn't exist. And just how much just that simple fact would change the, our relationship with the land, our relationship with colonialism, our obviously our relationship with the indigenous peoples that are still here, that have died as a result of what's going on, like, so forth, right? Just that simple fact is, but we can't, we can't admit that. Right? I like what you said there. We should even do something just solely on that, like just maybe even a meme, like without First Nations, the United States doesn't exist. 100%. Like that, yeah. that just very direct assertion. I mean, and it's mm-hmm. clear as day. Okay. 
Bowden goes on to say, although the savages were wild people and therefore an inferior sort, they were still people. And he's actually not saying that he got that from a quote, which I should have looked up, but whatever, I'll go back and get it. That's actually not, those are not his words. That is a quote that he's taken from one of the sources. In the eyes of the most colonizing Englishmen, this view would change in both imagination and reality. He goes on to say, and he is looking at literature as well because literature frames narrative. He goes, in Shakespeare's American fable, The Tempest, um, the uncertainty over the identity of Indians as savage persons or something else was epitomized by Shakespeare's Indian analog, Caliban, which are an anagram of cannibal. To the patrician Prospero, he was a savage and slave and therefore still human, while the consensus among the plebeians was that Caliban was not human, but a monster. So even in this very popular, again, you don't get much more popular in terms of literature mm -hmm. at this time period or maybe even later on of, of Shakespeare, this framing makes an appearance of the dehumanization process taken by Englishmen of First Nations. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, just the absolute dehumanization we've talked about. And this Taliban like a, makes an appearance regardless in, in, in patriarchy and gender as well, right? Like yep, I mean, exactly. So. I think that, you know, this is a theme that's common in many of our episodes and topics that we discuss is just the functioning of dehumanization, right? And just the, how disgusting that is, the disgusting behavior that that can justify, I mean, up in the 20th century, right? In the 21st century, it's not like it's, a, it's unique to this period, unfortunately, this still exists. You know, if we can depict people as animals, then we can treat them as such, which then leads to a whole conversation about the treatment of animals, but that's a whole other thing. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, we can get started on that. Um, <laughs> but no, the, the, the point remains clear. Though this happened in the past, it informs a tradition that is still alive and well today. And again, I'm going to date this episode, unfortunately, but we have just seen footage over the last couple of days of people on the border of Arizona and Texas riding horses, literally whipping uh, Haitian refugees. Yep. That, there is nothing more dehumanizing than that footage that we are watching right now. 100%. I mean, it harkens back to this period. You know what I mean? 100%, which is why people, people are outraged. With whips or whatever they say they're using their reins, but whatever, right. whipping people of color on the southern border. Mm -hmm. How is that still possible? It's because this is attached to a tradition and a tradition 100%. in the way that we view space, in the way we acquire um, or view humans in this case, or acquire resources, or in our case, we talk more about storytelling. Yeah, and 100% like a very complex intersectionality of, you know, relationship to land, race, gender, nationalism, I mean, so forth, like everything is wound in there that results in the year 2021, men on horses at the border, white men must be, it must be said, are literally whipping people of color trying to come into our country. It's just ridiculous. A country that, again, as we're going through here, was not properly the white man's to begin with. 100%. Okay, moving forward, he then kind of flips the narrative just a little bit regarding like the the primeval forest. He moves from like the desert wilderness, this unpopulated place, to the primeval forest narrative. This idea that in in a way, like the Puritans view it as a place that is completely scary and untapped, rather than just like being easy and un, uh, that we can just like have this and settle it and farm it. There's also the narrative that is often attached, especially with Puritans, given of course their their religious purview of of well, predicated around fear, that mm -hmm. this was a very scary place as well because of its untamed nature, um, which is interesting. They were aware of some of the pandemics that had set in before they showed up. They even found mass graves and things along those lines. They, of course, equated that to God paving the way for them, like cleansing the earth of these um, unholy creatures or whatever they would have rationalized that as. And we know that was due heavily to disease. But then here we go. They would domesticate, and he uses the word, widowed forest in other words like this like who the the, the prior um um i mean in this case husbandry of this land uh, had passed away and they are now retaming it that part of the narrative is important almost as a, it absolves the puritans of the responsibility for ushering in part of these pandemics and not just the pandemics we ignore things like the war on the Narragansett or the war on the Mar uh, Massachusetts or the fact that like literally by the second Thanksgiving that was held a couple of decades after the first, they are giving thanks around the severed head of Medicom, right? A, uh, a, a, a sachem, right? So mm -hmm. it's about, I mean, I don't know. I, I, 
I guess I'm trying to find a way to frame this as anything but predatory. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think this. I think a lot about. You know, I never given much thought to this before I actually read this article, which is kind of funny because it's about geography, but the entire narrative and everyone can picture a movie that they've watched at least or a book that they've read where it takes place on the East Coast and the woods are like the scary place, right? Where the witches do their rituals. And like, what's the book I'm thinking of? The Salem Witch Trials. It's like you read in high school. Everyone reads it in high school. The Crucible. The yeah, The Crucible. Exactly. 100%. It's the Salem witch trials. And just think about how many narratives there are that have survived to this day about the woods being the outer part of where people lived and what was there that was scary and they were untamed and no one had been there, right? That's all a result of the narrative that was created during uh, the original settling of these lands by white people, right? Their claim that, the, the invented claim, that the woods had never been touched, right? And... Uh, Bowden goes through in this section a lot of primary sources from the period saying this exact thing. Uh, things like it had never been touched by the hand of an Indian and like so forth. It was dark and, you know, it had never been cleared of the underbrush and like all of these things that, that's painting this picture of the forest as the scary place, the unknown, right? The dark, all of these things. And so you can picture our listeners and watchers like these movies you've seen and these books that you've read that paint this narrative from the time. That's all a result of the invention of this tradition, right? At during this period to justify the behavior, the actions of the people at the time. And then to this day, still this behavior uh, uh, to justify the actions. What is that family. embarrassment of a film by M. Night Shyamalan, like The Village or something? The Village. Like that. yeah, yeah, that's exactly like, what I mean, I'm saying. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. That's anyway. Their narrative, but yeah. Yeah. But they go <laughs> on. He goes on. He, he calls out, in this case, James Fenimore Cooper, wildly famous, of course, for his mm-hmm. literary works. Um, who more than any other writer fastened the image of the virgin forest in the American mind. And the point here is that this individual is writing in the 1840s about things that happened in the 1600s. Mm-hmm. So overly romanticizing to invent that tradition, right? That tradition of conquest. Why might he be writing in the 1840s about this? Because there was a different conquest taking place at that time. They were moving west. That was a different conquest, right? Yep. Across the Mississippi. Okay. And he also mentions here, I see the Scarlet Letter, right? Which was written yeah. in 1848. Mm-hmm. about events 200 years prior, etc. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it says right there, Longfellow, again, Henry Longfellow, wildly influential for making up mm-hmm. a myth that we've called out about Paul Revere, who did not complete his ride, but we all think he did because of Longfellow, Longfellow's poem, Paul Revere, right? That was hero making mm-hmm. that didn't actually happen. Yep. Longfellow in the epic of court, court, uh, the courtship of Miles Standish displaced woods and desert wilderness in the Plymouth colony with the forest, but he had already in Evangeline given that forest by the name or the name by which it had been known to generations of American schoolchildren. This is the forest primeval. Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter, looking backward 200 years, invents for Hester Prynne a forest worthy of Beowulf and Grendel in the Salem area where observers of 1630 to 1650 actually found a normal New England landscape to open plains, sandy ground, woods, and bushes and marshes. For Hawthorne, however, there was a great black forest, dark, inscrutable, obscure, untamed, and dismal. That wild heathen nature never subjugated by human law. These are what we're telling people, not even at the time we must stress, but afterwards to invent this tradition of conquest, of taming. Yeah. So. I mean, he even goes all the way up to 1903, and there's this quote from this book, right? Right. It was a mantle of primeval forest with singular, singularly dense undergrowth. This was all of living green, facing settlers on the eastern seaboard, right? Like, this is hundreds of years later, hundreds of years, and they're still writing about what was going on 300 years ago, right? It's just ridiculous. And again, they're not writing about that past because they want to teach an accurate history. Obviously, these people are just trying to tell a very interesting story. What they're writing about is the context of their time and then applying that to the past to rationalize their current behaviors. That's exactly. what we're missing. Mm-hmm. That's what we don't understand. When we start romanticizing, he actually, they don't actually, I'm, Bowden actually doesn't really get to it much in this article, although, although we can maybe do a later episode about it. Um, the wild, wild west, like that doesn't get, mm-hmm. that, he doesn't talk about that invented American tradition, but that is also a wild, like everyone's just running around with six shooters and there's a, there's a shootout every day at the OK Corral, like <laughs> thus justifying this whole, like very like gun based vigilante mm-hmm. culture um, that, that, that. Many Americans are still obsessed with to this day. Right? I mean, not and to then, mention how 
indigenous people are depicted in that whole narrative, right? Right. Spaghetti Westerns later on Mm -hmm. and whatnot. Okay. Anyway, he does move a little bit further west in his discussion of the great American desert. So this is different than the idea of just a deserted Atlantic coast that is still mostly like trees and mountains and rivers. Well, not mountains until you get to Appalachia, but you get the idea. Um, To the actual Great Plains, which were often equated to a great American desert, right? Mm -hmm. So this like vast swath of like just rolling hills and flat plains and so on and so forth. The Great American Desert was the best example of an invented tradition in the interior. I would debate, I still think the Wild West, but he's a geographer and talking mostly about how we view the space itself. So yes, Mm -hmm. I guess I I guess I wouldn't disagree um, (laughs) from a geographic lens. We invented this whole idea of the Great American Desert and this was key because that desert would eventually become the bread slash corn basket of um, and of course, an important like major route to the West Coast where we were starting to perform our extractive processes in um, California gold rushes and later Colorado gold rushes and Nevada gold rushes or silver rushes, um, and even up all the way up to the Yukon. The reason I mention this, though, is because this desert had to be tamed again. It's something that you had to endure and then tame. And that's what we think about when we think about the the Western Great Desert. Anything you want to add? Um, yeah, about, I just like, like this whole like Nebraska, Kansas, like these just this, this 100%. openness. Yeah. I mean, let's think about just for a second how difficult it would have been to travel across the Great Plains at the time. The answer is 0%. Compared to like making it over the Rockies or the Appalachians, like Jared mentioned, right, et cetera, or even through the forests of the East Coast, like traveling across the plains is very, very simple. And he specifically says here, which I like, let's see if I can find this. He specifically says these elite New Englanders wanted the United States to encounter a barrier to the country's headlong plunge westwards. And what they viewed as the inevitable concomitant concomitant of expansion, more new states, senators and congressmen, and a diminution of New England's political power in Washington. So he says they invented this myth of the great American desert and the challenge that it took to settle these lands because they did not want to have to establish new states and political entities there because those entities would dilute the power that New England held in the political structure of the nation. And so this entire myth of like, I mean, every single, this is such a key part of the wild, wild west narrative that Jared was just talking about, just the story of the expansion westward, right? The Western frontier and all of these, so much of the stories and histories and movies and everything is a depiction of, right? These innocent settlers in their covered wagon going west and like, I mean, Jesus, even the video game, the Oregon Trail, right? Like, I mean, we can think of so many examples of just how this narrative is just pounded into our brains of how difficult it was. And Bowden's point is that this thing is completely, the whole thing is manufactured, like the absolutely manufactured because of political and economic motivations of the New Englanders wanting to make it seem as if it was very, very difficult to travel westward. Well, and to enhance the discussion now, if we throw in some history, right, K through 12 curricula, like that's what's focused on, right? The trials Mm -hmm. and tribulations of a Lewis and Clark or a Zeb Pike or like that's what we and we don't focus on all of the other things that were also going on the time, right? Land dispossession of the Black Hills and the Dakotas, of which they're still Mm -hmm. violated treaties, treaties of Fort Laramie one and two, right? Like we still know these things um, and we're willing to just ignore them. And we turn those other people, I mean, another one that I really like to focus on here being a little bit more local and close to home for us, like the literal Indian hunter, this dude, Kit Carson, and we are naming like military Mm -hmm. bases after this individual, right? Because he is opening up the ability for this land, this great American desert to be, to be, to be settled. Reverse. We still kind of have this one, especially when we're talking about like East Coast sensibilities. And this is a little bit off topic, but I also think it's interesting. This great American desert now in modern times is called the flyover states, right? Like, so it's Mm -hmm. still kind of like, and I was thinking about that when you were talking about not wanting to have to deal with like a political governmental like entity in this region, right? Like, so it's kind of interesting in that way. It doesn't have a whole lot to do with the invention of American tradition, but it did did get me thinking about that. I always like the part of the Lewis and Clark narrative, right? When in reality, they met with indigenous peoples and through their translator, right, told them, hey, we're trying to see if this river goes to the ocean. And the indigenous people straight up told them, like, it does not. And they were like, okay, cool. We're going to see for ourselves. Like, what? 
They are, it just proves the fact that they already knew. They already had explored these lands. They already knew where the rivers went and where the mouths were and where they weren't and et cetera. But the story is still Lewis and Clark discovered the West. You know what I mean? Yeah, they didn't like, discover just, a damn thing. They really no, did. Not at all. Yeah. Um, okay. This moves us to uh, Bowden's argument regarding garden and frontier. Goes on to say, the saints, yeomen, and pioneers created first the garden and then the frontier to replace the forest primeval, the infertile prairies, and the great American desert of the pristine wilderness. As ideas, both garden and frontier have ancient traditions, although that of the garden reaches back to Hesiod and Virgil. The garden was prefigured as an American pastoral image in Shakespeare's Tempest and found its early American expression, albeit an ambiguous one, in Beverly's history and present state of Virginia. Soon after the opening of the 18th century, the image of a landscape of reconciliation, a mild agricultural semi-primitive terrain, became a commonplace in the rising flow of descriptive writing about America. So this is important. Like this, this, this idea that the, and he uses the term saints, yeomen, pioneers, this idea that they are going to eventually make this land flourish as if it wasn't already flourishing in its natural state or even its mm. mildly tempered state under First Nation um, um, husbandry, right? Like, so there, mm. this idea of, I mean, and I would argue, he says Hesiod and Virgil, I would argue, I, I got me thinking, of course, Garden of Eden-esque, right? Like that idea. Yep. Oh, 100%. I think that's connected to And then he goes on further to talk about Jeffersonian agrarianism, right? And the fa- Thomas Jefferson's straight up responsible for the narrative of like, you know, gardening brings peace in your life and so forth, right? Hands in the soil type thing. And Bowden really breaks down how that relates to the American narrative of like terraforming the land to bring forth what you will survive on. But more specifically, like Jared alluded to earlier, this idea of capital production, right? Crops to generate a profit. And it's this economic activity, right? This relationship of like, and it talks about how gardening is a social act. It creates a society, right? And so forth. Hugely important still to this day. Uh, and I just laugh every time I see, you know, everyone with a little garden on the side of their house and like mm-hmm. how it's so connected to this, you know, individual agrarianism not even idea. just the garden the kentucky bluegrass and like the desert oh God, and stuff yeah. like this like mm-hmm. it's just so i mean what a wholly irrational process um yeah. and, and dumb. That's such it, a good example yeah i uh, kentucky bluegrass and like las vegas i guess what an embarrassment like people are mm-hmm. going to be digging us up in in, in generations and be like what were they thinking like this is yeah. what, are, what are you doing okay exactly <laughs> Bowden then moves on, of course, to one of the more famed um, um, framers of this Western mythos, perhaps the most famous, Frederick Jackson Turner, finally gets there, and the frontier thesis um, of the 1880s. And, and, and this is what Bowden has to say. When Turner, Frederick Jackson Turner, invented the frontier tradition, he was, in effect, not just replacing the garden of the world tradition, but absorbing it into a frontier idea that had been in the air for generations. By the end of the 18th century, the notion of a Westford uh, American progression in space and time was found in Jefferson's writings. Jefferson viewed the continual presence of an open land in which his yeoman farmers could expand as necessary to avoid urbanization and its corresponding decadence, um, which is interesting because at least in that one respect, and we're not big fans of Thomas Jefferson, but in one respect, he'd probably be turning over his, in his grave looking at a city like a Phoenix or a Tucson or a Las yeah. Vegas that just does not belong there, right? Like that just mm-hmm. geographically has no place um, and no right to existence, which is a very powerful statement for me to say. So if you're an Arizona listener, I'm sorry, but you are living literally in one of the dumbest places ever invented by humanity. You're going to run out right. of water. You're over-extracting your resources it's not sustainable, but whatever. Okay. Back to Frederick Jackson Turner. Public acceptance of Turner's interpretation in significance of the frontier in American history was rapid because he was simply gave forth to what Americans had known in their bones for more than a century. By winning over academic historians, he universalized the tradition of the West as symbol rather than place, as America's wellspring. And although fierce academic debates later undermined the hypothesis, The frontier tradition, with some retained flavor of the garden, is still steadfast in the minds of the American people, despite the widely published attempts of new historians to remake Western history. And it really is. There's been numerous, I mean, he's writing this in the 1880s. We have, we've had post-structural historians since at least, what, the 1960s, 70s, 80s, maybe into that that realm. And they've tried to read, and they can't, they've not been able to challenge this frontier thesis as the dominant form of traditional thinking about the American West. 
why? What do you yeah, think? Yeah, and even, I mean, and Bowden describes this, right? Even though that there is literally no factual, nothing factual about the frontier thesis, that people are such true believers in this idea that the historians that attempt to take it on, it just falls on deaf ears. It doesn't matter that it's completely wrong and that the historians can very, very accurately completely take it apart. That does not matter. People still believe it's still in the textbooks. It's still the thing that's talked about and that's taught, right? The idea of the American frontier is just so ingrained in the historical narrative, the myth of the United States that it's basically just untouchable. What do you think are the modern ramifications of this frontier thesis? So it's fine for us to, to crap on Frederick Jackson Turner for manufacturing a desire for people to head West Young Man and go extract gold or silver or whatever it is, go go uh, find more furs, whatever it is you were mm-hmm. trying to accomplish. But what are the ramifications? That's fine for the 1880s. What about now? What I mean, about thinking about everything about an untamed frontier, a frontier that we have to yep. conquer? What do you think? I mean, I would go as far as to say that it's probably the most influential piece of the myth that dictates our global policy and that has for a very long time. When we go out and colonize another nation throughout the past history of the United States, it's informed by this frontier thesis. We've now expanded it from the you know Western frontier of the United States to the now global frontier where we are going out and doing the exact same thing that everyone did in the West at this time, just in other nations across the world. And it's either economically or militarily or most often both that this is happening. Definitely, definitely expansionist by nature. I would also argue then not the geographic, but the more ideological manifest destiny also um, informs Mm -hmm. that. But this is not about manifest destiny today. This is more the geographical premise, but they do work in tandem for sure. I'm also thinking like the frontier regarding even like what's the final frontier that we're all told about here in 2021 and have been since I've been on this planet. What's the final frontier? It informs us to use an obscene amount of resources that could be better used elsewhere to go what? What are we doing? We're planting yeah. a flag on the moon. We're yeah. going to try and terraform Mars, which we already know. Most scientists agree we're, that's not a thing. That's not reality. But how many resources are we using that could be better used in healthcare, right? Or in education systems or in creating more social equity? Like those are, and, and we're just throwing them away. We're throwing them away. I mean, and your examples of Phoenix and Las Vegas are just two perfect examples of how this has informed the way that we view our relationship right. to natural resources. And like you said, it's all all good and well when it's going west for gold and silver. It's another thing when it's, you know, the extraction, the overconsumption of water, like in the Vegas and the Phoenix case for cities that just geographically should not be there, right? Right. And when we go to other countries and extract their resources with little to no regard for how that impacts their geography and their populations and so forth, hugely informed by this idea of the frontier and its relationship to resource extraction. Right. Cue um, um, Edward Abbey at this point in what Cadillac mm-hmm. Desert or like cue, cue those arguments, which are also great and probably deserve their own episode. But um, mm-hmm. but this whole idea of even in that example, making the desert bloom, that was something we took pride in as humans, as strictly American superheroes. We were able to conquer the desert and make it bloom. Even if it was only for a short period of time, that's something that we revel in, even if it's causing untold amounts of suffering and problems to this day, right? We already know Colorado River doesn't even make it to to the ocean anymore, not even making Mm -hmm. it to Mexico. Briefly did, but now we're back to not, nope, not making it anymore. We understand that most of the major Western aquifers are over overtaxed at this point and going to run out. And yet people are still like, I'm gonna, I, I want to live in the nice weather of like a Phoenix or a Tucson or a San Diego even, or a Vegas or what? They're still growing. They're the fastest growing parts of the country right now. Mm-hmm. What kind of asinine imbecile, right? Imbecilic way of thinking about the world rationalizes that. Yep. For what purposes? For what ends, right? It's completely unsustainable, but we don't care because that's part of the American tradition conquest and a lack of sustainability and a lack of respect for the geographic limitations that we have to live by. 
And what's hugely important is this idea that like, well, when the local resources are extracted, we can just go elsewhere and get more. And we just continue our expansion. We which, don't learn from our mistakes. No. We say, oh, wow, we built a city here and now we don't have any water. That's ah, fine. We'll just go get some somewhere else. Right. Right. What was that proposal? I want to say in the late 80s, early 90s, where California saw the writing on the wall and petitioned, I want to say, Alaska to pipe the Yukon River down to them. Like uh, that's not actually solving the problem. What happens when you <laughs> use that all up? Right. I want to say it was in the 80s or 90s. And keep in mind, like, it's not just that. Like, you, then you start damming up all the rivers. We already know that what the problem that the damming situation has here in the American West on our ecology and other species and our ability to be sustainable. And yet we keep damming things up. Mm-hmm. We understand. We understand that. We know the surveys are already there. What was it? Damnation revealed. Like, now some people are working to get some of the dams torn down. Yep. That's a great film, by the way. If you guys haven't seen it, see uh, Damnation. Um, but the ecological impact is huge, mm-hmm. but we don't want to face the facts or like you said, we will merely go and extract resources from somewhere else, which leads to more colonial processes. I love when people say, and I know I'm offending a lot of our listeners now, cause a lot of them are, I, I, I know like into kind of sci-fi and space and those types of things. But like the answer is not to get like. The answer is to change one's behavior and traditions rather than just go continue to extract, right? We've all seen the cute little meme that like growth for the sake of growth is the ideology of a cancer cell or a Mm -hmm. parasite, right? And that's the way that this invented tradition of conquest and extraction and taming and all those other types of things, that's, that's, that's the discourse. Well, I mean, and that's a perfect example, right? That's just exemplifies how far this has gotten this narrative, right, this myth of the frontier and this relationship of uh, resource extraction, that we are now having real conversations about going to Mars. To find ice or water or whatever. Yeah, our current trajectory is so unsustainable. Embarrassing. Yeah. Bowden concludes, Bowden concludes, the grand invented tradition of American nature as a whole is the pristine wilderness, a succession of imagined environments which have been conceived as far more difficult for settlers to conquer than they ever were in reality. The pristine wilderness in the Northeast took the form of a howling desert wilderness in the 17th century. In the Eastern United States as a whole, the pristine wilderness became the primeval forest in the 19th century. The infertile virgin prairie and the great American desert came late later in time and space. That word virgin is also important here, but I'm not even mm-hmm. going to go on that back. That, that sidetrack at this point. The noble savage, non-agricultural and barely human, was invented to justify dispossession of the Indians and to prove that the Indian had no part in transforming America from wilderness to garden. In each new ecological zone encountered by Americans, the savage was reinvented in essentially the same form by Cooper, Parkman, and others. While the Indians, branded as indolent and capable of learning the arts of civilization, America was made by Puritan saint, yeoman, pioneer frontiersman, sodbuster, cowboy, and latter-day saint. Superhuman, overachieving, self-glorifying Americans all. Their conquest of the pristine American wilderness was so much more rapid and difficult than ever before in the world that the environment in, environmental encounter permanently scarred the American psyche. American detractors and boosters of Americans claim that as people, we are more hostile to nature and more exploitative of the environment than are other people. I think I don't really have much else to add. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please leave us a rating in your podcast app that will help more listeners discover our show. Also know that we have a YouTube channel where we post all of our episodes and other videos that we create. Just search for Revolution and Ideology in YouTube. If you really enjoy what we do and would like to support us further, you can do so at patreon.com slash revolution and ideology. Many thanks to our Patreon supporters who keep us motivated to create content. You can find more information on our website at revolutionandideology.com.